today comes from Luke chapter 4. The message is titled, And He Was Hungry. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting... He left him until an opportune time. And so Jesus finds himself in the wilderness. A dry place with little vegetation. There aren't any people there. We're not exactly sure how Jesus gets to this wilderness, but the scripture tells us that he was compelled by the Spirit. The Spirit drew him into the wilderness and led him there. This is not a place of houses or neighborhoods or communities. It's not a place of motels or tents or places to camp. There are dangers that lurk here. It's a place where there aren't people. People don't want to go here. It was undeveloped, unsettled. The scriptures tell us that Jesus often went to lonely places, and, and this is one of those times. But Jesus goes to the wilderness. The previous scriptures tell us he had just been baptized by John the Baptist, and, it was, and the same spirit that was part of his baptism is now part of leading him into the wilderness, a place of difficulty. My favorite verse in this passage is, is verse 2, Luke 4, verse 2. It says, He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. It makes me laugh because... Of course he would be hungry after going 40 days without food, right? And I, it's just like an understatement, that sentence, and, and he was hungry. And I find it so interesting that our Jesus, our Jesus was hungry. Our, our Jesus, who, who is strong and big and powerful, was hungry. And if you've ever been really hungry, whether it's through fasting or whether it's just because you haven't had enough to eat, it doesn't make you feel good to be hungry. 
when you're hungry, you have this, this desire and this urge to satisfy the hunger. It, it's, it's something that calls out, feed me, fill me, deal with me. Being hungry makes you feel weak. May, it might make you feel lightheaded. It might make you feel foggy in your mind. It doesn't make you feel good to feel hungry. And here we have Jesus, who ate nothing for 40 days, and at the end of this time, he was hungry. So Jesus is in this wilderness place. And when you're in a wilderness place, and especially when you're hungry in a wilderness place, you're more vulnerable. You're more open to attack. You might feel like you're drifting. It's a place where often we experience spiritual drought, a sense of dryness with God, or emotional drought, or mental drought, financial drought, a, a place where we're just wandering. A, a, a wilderness is a place where you're, you're kind of disoriented, like, what am I doing here? And I'm stuck, and I don't know how to get out. And often in a wilderness place, it, it's a time and a place when you experience a more intensified temptation. Often in a wilderness place, that's when the voices of the enemy in our minds are the loudest. The messages of self-doubt. The messages of questioning, of I'm not good enough. The insecurities, the regrets, the questions about God. And in a time of, of being hungry and in a wilderness place, it can feel discouraging and disorienting and disappointing. And there's nothing like a good long 40 days in the wilderness to really cause you to wonder who you really are and what you're really doing here. We are in a season in the church calendar called Lent. And Lent is this period of time that's 40 days leading up to Easter. Lent is uh, a name that, ca that came to the church calendar a few centuries down the road, but, but the practice of taking 40 days of fasting and preparing for Easter was something that the very earliest of Christians did. It wasn't just a Catholic thing. It isn't just about giving up chocolate. But there's this idea of the 40 days leading up to Easter was established by early Christians from early church history as a period of of fasting and giving up something in our own selves for the purpose of disciplining ourselves to be more attentive to who God is and what he's doing in our lives. It's a time when we internalize the death and life of Jesus by practicing self-denial and self-examination. And Lent was influenced by this passage of scripture that we're looking at today. This passage of Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days, and it has been modeled, Christians have used this as a model of saying, Let's take 40 days to set aside time to examine our hearts, to pray, to be in, in intentional communion with God. The wilderness causes us to question our identities almost more than anything else. 
Now this passage in Luke chapter 4 comes at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The preceding chapter in Luke chapter 3 is all about the baptism of Jesus. Jesus had just been baptized and it had been this glorious, incredible experience. Do you remember how the story goes? Jesus comes, John the Baptist is baptizing people publicly at the Jordan River and Jesus comes to John the Baptist and says, I need to be baptized and John's like, who, who, are you, who am I to baptize you? And Jesus is like, nope, it's got to be done. So he gets baptized and as John the Baptist puts him under the water, brings him back up under the water. Heaven breaks open. And it says the Spirit of God descended like a dove on Jesus. And a voice from heaven was heard to be saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Talk about affirmation of identity. To have someone, to have a voice from heaven open up and break out over you and say, you are mine. I love you. You make me happy. The voice of the Father in audible words speaking into the identity of Jesus and who he is and what he is supposed to do. It's beautiful. But we have here, in today's passage, another account of identity formation in Jesus. Where in the baptism we have the Father speaking and the Son being baptized and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. In the wilderness, we have Jesus seeking the Father. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit leading him in and leading him out of the wilderness. But there's another character in there, and it's the, the devil. The devil's not at the baptism. (laughs) The devil's here in the wilderness. And where the baptism was public, everybody could see it. This wilderness, this this is isolated. It's lonely. It's just, it's literally you, God, and the devil. And that's about it. And, and where baptism was, was a moment, I mean, I don't know how long it took for them to baptize people, but it was probably just a few minutes. A few minutes of joy and confidence in your identity. In contrast to 40 stinking days in the wilderness. I mean, 40 days ago was like in January. That's a long time ago. It was long. And where the baptism had the audible voice of God speaking, in the wilderness, we do still have the words of God. We do still have the words of God through the written scripture. The scripture gets quoted in here, and the word of God is part of the story. And while the word of God through scripture is great and, and really, really good, like, the audible voice of God is a little cooler. I mean, you have to say it's a little bit cooler. So, like, there's this big moment over here, and, you know, it's just different. And, and so where the baptism was characterized by this incredible moment of affirmation, we have here this identity crisis, this challenge to Jesus' identity that's characterized more by struggle and wrestling and testing. Now, I think I would rather have my identity be formed that way. (laughs) I would rather have the voice breaking over me, oh, I love you, you make me happy, this is who you are, rather than the whole, like, process part. That's hard. And yet both of these are ways of clarifying our identities in Christ. 
God speaks to us both through the baptisms and through the wilderness times. God forms and shapes our identities in multiple ways. Both of these situations develop Jesus in different ways, and both are necessary for his own development and preparation for the ministry that God has for him to do. The wilderness, the wilderness isn't fun, but it's an important place. The wilderness isn't something we usually seek out, but important things happen in the wilderness. Slow, monotonous, but important things happen in the wilderness. In, in the wilderness, it, it's a place of process. It's a place of going slower. It's a place of waiting, which is not very fun. It's a place of examination. You have to actually look inside and pay attention to being alone with yourself. And I wonder, church, what important thing is God wanting to do in you right now, but you're too busy avoiding the wilderness? You're bringing your noise and your, your busyness and your preoccupations and your distractions and, and just trying to not sit in the quiet wilderness space and receive all of the lessons of the wilderness that God might have for you. Where is God wanting you to take time to examine your soul, but you're plugging your ears? See, the wilderness is an important place, but the wilderness is also a risky place. The wilderness is risky because there's no guarantee that you're going to come out on the other side okay. There's not a guarantee that you're going to come through the wilderness without a trouble. The wilderness is a place of testing. It is a place of seeing if your faith under pressure will grow stronger or if it will crack. Both are real possibilities. It's a place where you could potentially lose everything. The wilderness is a place where you could lose your identity. You could forget who you are. It's a place where you could lose your faith. It's a place where you could lose all of the things that God has called you to do and, and leave them behind. It's a place that's vulnerable. And the thing about God is God doesn't make us follow him. He doesn't force us to follow him. He, he invites us to follow him. He teaches us to follow him. He might give us an elbow and say, hey, follow me. He might, you know, give, give that kind of beckoning, but he doesn't make us at the end of the day. He doesn't make us follow him. He wants you to freely choose him. The wilderness is a place to decide if you're going to risk to follow Jesus or if you're going to compromise with the enemy. Let's look at these tests a little bit more closely. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So at Jesus' most vulnerable point, verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The devil says, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, Jesus, if, 
if you've really got this whole like God thing going on, if this is really your identity, he says, prove it. And, and he doesn't even just question Jesus' identity. He goes, so, he goes, he doesn't even just question it. He goes so far as to say, and I want you to prove it, and you have to prove it in this specific way. Have you ever had somebody say to you, say to you, hey, I want, I want you to prove that this is true. You, you show me that you can do this, and you have to do it X, Y, Z way. You have to show it the way that I'm demanding that you show it to me. This is what the enemy is doing. He says, oh, Jesus, I'll know that you are a worthwhile person if you turn the stone into bread. I'll know that you are a person of reality if you do what I tell you to do. And this is how the enemy works. He goes to you and he says, if, 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 if this is true, then why is this? If this is what you say you are, then why, what are you doing about that? He says, if. And the enemy loves to mess with God's people. The enemy loves to get into our minds and to say things like, you aren't really that great. You aren't really that saved. You aren't really that strong. You aren't really that good. There are three wilderness tests I'm going to highlight today. The first wilderness test is the enemy wants to use hard circumstances to make you question your identity. The enemy wants you to get so overwhelmed in your stuff, in your wilderness, in the difficulty of your situation, so that you forget who you are. This is what he's doing to Jesus. He's like, you're hungry. Let's just kind of forget who you are for a minute. You, you do a miracle. I'm going to tell you what to do. Let's forget who you are for a minute. Let's just focus on these needs that you have, Jesus. And if you are a Christian in a wilderness place right now, the enemy wants you to believe things like, you're not as good as you thought you are. You aren't called by God. You are a constant failure. You don't belong here. You won't measure up. You are a nobody. You don't matter that much. And often they're just little nagging thoughts that, like a, like a splinter, work their way under our skin until they become lies that we eventually believe. And the question that I think we need to ask is, will we cave to the questions that the enemy plants to capitalize on our insecurities? Will we worship our insecurities? Will we let our insecurities take first place rather than the word of God who tells us what we are and who we are and what our calling is? Will we worship the accusations? Will we worship the things that get said about us? Or will we choose to be confident in God's calling, God's definition of our lives? The enemy wants to use hard circumstances to make you question who you are. The second wilderness test is that the enemy wants to undermine your faith by making you focus on your circumstances. So not only does he want to mess with your sense of who you are, he wants to mess with your sense of who you believe God is. He wants to mess with your faith. He wants to undermine your faith by saying, let's just focus on all that you are going through right now. And if we can just focus on your problems, that's going to make your faith erode. The enemy's goal is to break you down. And he wants to drive a wedge between you and God. This is a tactic that he uses over and over again of seeking to get us to focus on our situation 
to the exclusion of letting our faith be the primary thing. He says, focus on your situation, get your eyes off God, forget the big kingdom picture, take matters into your own hands, make your own bread, let's just turn that stone into bread, it's going to be better this way. Forget about the faith piece. Obviously, God's not doing a great job. Obviously, God is messing things up. And so let's just make our own bread out of stones and move on and do things our way. The enemy wants to undermine your faith by making you focus on your circumstances. The passage continues in verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. It's kind of a cool picture. I wish I could see that happen. And the devil said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. I don't have time to unpack all, all of what is going on here. But all of these kingdoms do have some sort of, the, the enemy does have some sort of influence over the kingdoms of this world at this point. But all of this is going to change with Jesus. All of this is changing with the work Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection and with his second coming. And all of these will be Jesus eventually. That was the plan. The thing was, is that before Jesus would be over all of these kingdoms of this world, Jesus would have to go through crucifixion. He would have to go through the cross. He would have to go through death and burial and then resurrection. And he, he would have to do it. God's, that's God's way for Jesus. But here the enemy is offering a shortcut. He says, I'll give out this all to you. You can skip over that other crucifixion stuff. Just like give me a little worship and then I'll, then you can, you can be, king over this. Just give me a little bit of worship instead. Let's do a shortcut. I think a common test when being in a time of wilderness is the enemy wants you to take shortcuts. The wilderness test is the enemy wants you to take shortcuts to God's plan for your life. Maybe the enemy can't distract you from what you're doing, but maybe he can mess up how you get there. Maybe you know, you're doing what you need to do, but then when you're offered an opportunity to do it a little differently than how God wants you to, you're like, you justify it to yourself and say, well, I can still get there if I just compromise. I don't know why God takes so much time to develop us. I don't know why sometimes God does things in our lives tomorrow. We pray, tomorrow we've got to answer to prayer. I don't know why he does that. I don't know why sometimes we pray and we ask God for something and in that moment God does something. And I don't know why other times we wait for 40 days or 40 years or we wait through the duration of our lifetime and we don't even see the answers to our prayer in our lifetime but they happen after we pass on. The Bible has some things to say about that happened to certain people. I don't understand God's timing and yet don't we get mad about it a lot? None of us know God's timing the best. And yet most of us get frustrated with God for not doing it how we think he should. The wilderness test is the enemy wants you to take shortcuts. And the person who is being faithful will say, I'll do it the long way, Jesus, if that's what you want. The enemy is out to steal and kill and destroy. 
The enemy's suggestions to you, the shortcuts he offers, they look delicious. They look like fresh baked bread when you're really, really hungry. Last night I was at a family party at my sister's house. And we had, for our, we had a nice big dinner. It was just all fun. And we had rolls. And uh, my, my sister and brother-in-law grew grapes in their backyard last summer. So they had the, this little mini, mini vineyard kind of thing. They just made a few. But it was enough so where they could make grape jelly. So they made homemade grape jelly, a few different varieties. It was so good. I'm not usually a grape jelly person, but this was, this was so good. And so with the rolls, they, they had served the grape jelly. And I'm like, I'm just going to, this is really yummy. And so... I was, I was holding my roll, it had the jelly on it, and I was talking with them, and I, I was kind of holding my roll here as I was having this conversation. And they have a little dog. And their little dog, like, jumped up and snatched this roll out of my hand. This is what Satan is doing to you, church. <laughs> he says, make bread, make bread, and then he's going to snatch it from you. He's going to make you think you've got it, and then he's going to steal it from you. This is how the enemy works. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he, he tricks you into going a path you shouldn't go. He makes you think this is so good. This is what should, what should be done. This is wonderful. This is delicious. This is a great way forward. This is a good thing to do. And then he snatches it back. The enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy. And so with these tests, with this passage, do you, do you notice how Jesus responds to each of these tests? I, wish, I just wish we had a little bit more information about what it was like for Jesus going through these things. The fact that he was hungry and weak, I think, matters. And I think it matters, too, that the scripture presents this as this was a test, meaning it was, it was hard for him. There was some sort of challenge for Jesus in this story. And yet, despite the difficulties, despite the weakness, despite the struggle... There are three noteworthy things about the way that Jesus responds to the enemy's tests. The first one is this. Jesus responds to each temptation. He responds to each temptation. If you're taking notes, underline that word each. Every single individual temptation Jesus responds to. So the enemy presents a test. Jesus has a response. Test number two, Jesus has a response. Test number three, Jesus has a response. Jesus doesn't let the temptations pile up. He doesn't let the tests pile up. I, I think sometimes we're just like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of shut this out. I'm going to not deal with it. I'm going to kind of push it aside. I'm not going to deal with it. Jesus doesn't try to push it away and pretend it's not there. Jesus says, situation number one, no. Situation number two, uh, no again. Situation number three, no again. And I think it's important for us to not let the temptations and the tests pile up without being dealt with. Some of us like to turn our backs on the conflict. We don't want to acknowledge that it's really happening. We want to be in denial that there's like a real thing going on. And so we don't deal with it. Jesus shows us direct confrontation each time. No, no, and no. Jesus responds to each temptation. Number two, Jesus responds to each temptation with scripture. What have, what have we been talking about over and over again? Speaking what to each other? Scripture. Oh, wow. Okay. So what we're talking about over and over again is speaking scripture to each other. Speaking scripture back and forth in our conversation. Jesus uses scripture with every conversation he has here with the enemy. 
So the enemy presents him with test number one. Jesus quotes the word of God at him. Situation number two, Jesus quotes the word of God at him. Uh, And actually, the the enemy brings in his own quotation of scripture, too, that then has to be dealt with, and he kind of, like, twists it. And then Jesus comes, comes back at him, situation number three, with another quotation from the word of God. This is a great way for us to deal with wilderness testing. I don't know what your wilderness situation is. I know what mine is but you know what yours is. You know where you've been in a place of wilderness. You know the tests that come at you, the voices that come at you, the, the, the wrong, ungodly thought patterns that are part of your process. You know what those are. And I want to encourage you, this is probably homework that you have to do, but I want to encourage you to, th- to find a passage of scripture that specifically counters that testing. Find a passage of scripture that speaks to it. If you're dealing with temptation about a certain thing, find a passage of scripture that talks about that thing in the Bible. And when that temptation comes your way, when that test comes your way, speak that scripture to those thoughts. With whatever situation of wilderness you're going through, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to a scripture verse that you can use to respond to that, to counter the work of the enemy. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And this is the weapon that we have to respond and to react and to act against the attacks of the enemy. I strongly encourage you to do that homework to find that one verse that's just for you. And you say it to when the devil comes at your thoughts. You say it to people who might come at you with similar things. Find that verse, hold on to that, so that you can, like Jesus, respond to the temptations with scripture. The third thing about Jesus' response is that Jesus will not compromise with Satan. If you're taking notes, circle will not. Jesus will not compromise with Satan. I think that so often when the enemy is tempting us to take shortcuts or is, is tempting us to, to question, we, we, we kind of try to see both ways. We kind of try to see this side and that side. I mean, that's the popular way that we all are taught to deal with problems today. It's like you got to see both sides. And when it comes to God and Satan, you don't have to try to see both sides. You, you, you go on, you pick one or the other. And we don't compromise. We don't take a little bit of this. We don't give the devil just a little bit. And then we don't, we don't serve God with 90% and give 10% to the devil. We don't do that. Jesus will not compromise with Satan, not even a little. And I would encourage you for that little bit. I mean, maybe you're like 90% serving God. But that 10%, that 10%, the devil's got a, got a hook in you there. Jesus will not compromise with Satan. Let's, let's not compromise with the enemy. So these three wilderness tests, that, that first test was the enemy wants to use the hard circumstances to make you question your identity. But here's the truth. But your true identity is only found in God, not your circumstances. And it doesn't matter if the enemy is saying, if you are, if you think you're a child of God, if, then, then why this? Why that? Your identity, if you have put your trust in Jesus, is that you have been chosen by God. You have been called by name. He knows who you are. 
If you are a believer, it means you have been accepted by the divine God of the universe who made you and who sits in judgment over the entire world. It means that you are made for holiness. Your identity is that you are made for holiness. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says, the one who calls you to holiness is faithful and he will do it. That is your calling and your identity. You're, you're called to be holy. That's kind of crazy. Y- your identity as a Christian is that you are not a hopeless case, but you are a person with a future. That is the truth about who you are. If you are a Christian, the truth about you is not that you are an outsider. Maybe you've always felt like an outsider. You've always felt like you're just not quite belonging. But as a Christian, your truth of your identity is that you are a family member in the only family that ultimately matters. If you are a Christian, it means that your identity is that you are not overlooked. You don't get forgotten. You don't get missed in the family gatherings. Your name doesn't get forgotten. You get recognized. You are known. You are valued. You are treasured as an individual, incredible creation of God. It means that you are not forgotten, but you're remembered by a God who delights in your very existence, no matter what you do. Psalm 121 reminds us, He who watches over you will not slumber. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He remembers you all the time. The enemy wants you to forget who you are. My prayer for my kids, the prayer I prayed at the altar with kids today here at church, was that they would know how loved they really are. My prayer for us is if we would just get how loved we are, it would change everything. The second wilderness test about how how the enemy wants to to undermine your faith by making you focus on your circumstances, that's this idea of the enemy wants to drive a wedge between you and God. But the truth is that God wants your faith to be strengthened. And strengthening will only come as you focus your attention on God versus focusing your attention on your circumstances. Man, I mess this up every single day. I get absorbed with my circumstances. My eyes get off Jesus. I get focused on my circumstances, and it's all these issues. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. I've got Jesus. Okay, let's get things in perspective here. And it changes everything. God wants you to have stronger faith. And so he's going to allow you to experience periods of testing so you can be strengthened. He doesn't want you to stay at kindergarten level faith. He wants you to get to sixth grade faith and 12th grade faith, college faith. He wants you to grow and mature, and these things happen as we are tested and as we look to him. Hebrews 12, verse 1, I love this passage. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Perseverance equals sweat, doesn't it? Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such oppression from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Get your eyes off. You've you got to look at your circumstances, but let your priority be on Jesus. Fix your eyes 
on Jesus and let him be the lens through which you see everything. Right now we hear a lot of talk about faith. We hear a lot of people talking about, oh, I'm, I'm struggling with my faith, I'm wrestling with my faith. I, I, this is all over the place, it's everywhere. And it's good to ask questions. It's good to go deeper in our faith. It's good to pay attention to our faith. But, but I think that too often we, we set our faith as something outside of us that needs to be evaluated and probed and analyzed. And I'm going to encourage you, hold on to whatever faith you have. It is part of you. Your faith is the way that you experience salvation in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus is the thing that connects you to him. And I encourage you to nurture that and to hold on to it. Do what you can to protect that mustard seed of faith, even if it is very small. Hold on to that faith. Ask Jesus to help you with that. I know I've shared this before here with you, but, but I, I just wanted to bring it up again. And it's this idea of sometimes we get our eyes fixed not on Jesus, but we have this big circumstance. We have this big wilderness that's right in front of us. And all we can see is the dry, barren, rocky wilderness and no grass and nothing growing, nothing good happening. We get our eyes fixed on the wilderness and it becomes the issue. We get an issue that we think is all important and, uh, and we're like, God, I don't understand this thing. I have this question. I don't understand this question. And it's, it's the most important thing to me to figure out, God. I really want to understand this thing. And you have to answer this question for me, God, because if you don't answer it, like, I just can't move beyond this. And, and just like how Satan does this, where he says, if you're going to prove who you are, you've got you to gotta make some bread, we say to God, I'm only going to believe in you if you'll answer my question. I'm only going to put my trust in you if you're going to do this thing that I ask you to. And we give God the exact same kind of thing that, that the enemy does. And I want to encourage you that I think there is a time to say this thing, this question, this struggle, take that thing, this question, that struggle, and I encourage you to hold on to your faith by saying, Lord, this thing is important to me. This question matters a lot to me. Lord, I can't even see a way to trust in you without getting this question answered. I feel totally stuck here. I think it's a really big deal. But I choose, God, to put it on the back burner for now. And by faith, and I'm not going to forget about it. I'm going to let it be there. But by faith, I'm going to let it simmer in the background. And I'm not going to require you to deal with it first. I'm going to be open to you. I'm going to try to follow you. And I'm going to be, by faith, willing to let this simmer. I have kind of had this play out in my own life and, and multiple times over the years, and every time what I have found is that God comes to me in a fresh way. Not right away, and it's not always even obvious to me in the moment, but eventually he does. And I've come to find that eventually God deals with that, that thing, that question, that situation, the, the issue that has been so pressing, and often... He's just made me have a different question. I couldn't do that on my own. It's that it's God changed me. And I think we have a real problem when we put our issue as an idol before God. And we say, God, you must deal with this before I will put my faith in you. I encourage you, church. Set it aside and say, I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. I fix my eyes on Jesus. 
I get this thing out of my eyesight into the back burner, and I fix my eyes on Jesus. The third test is the enemy wants you to take shortcuts to God's plan for you. Man, I like the devil's shortcuts sometimes. I mean, they're faster. I like moving faster rather than slower. But God does this thing called like wanting to mature us. <laughs> and maturing takes time. God wants to strengthen you and focus you and deepen you and form you. And, and those things usually take time. I mean, sometimes he transforms us momentarily. And let's receive that when he does. Sometimes it's the baptism moment. It's awesome. But sometimes he's like, let's do the long version. Remember in this passage, who is at the wilderness? Who is there? We have Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit who led him there, and then we've got Satan. Who's noticeably absent? All the other people. In any other story that we have in Scripture, we have all the crowds, we have the disciples, we've got at least somebody else. And so the Scripture stories were all compiled by people who were telling the Gospel writers the stories of, this is what happened with Jesus, and the Gospel writers who saw things with their own eyes. This is somebody that none of them, this is something that none of them witnessed. None of them were eyewitnesses to the temptation of Jesus and the testing in the wilderness with the devil. None of them saw that. So how did they know about it? The only way they could possibly know about it is if Jesus told them. If Jesus at some point said to his disciples, hey, you know, there's this time when the Spirit made me go to the wilderness. And it was terrible. And I was hungry. And it was hard. But I want you to know that this happened. Because what happened is then, then the devil came. And he said this, and then I said that. And he said this, and, you know, I, it, it sounded good, but I said no. And then the third time, he came back again, and, and he said this other thing, and, boy, I thought about it, but I said no. And then he left me alone, and I was really glad. J Jesus had to tell them this story. Why did he tell them? I, I think because, I, I do think he wanted them to know about his own identity formation, but I think he also wanted us to know that we too would have our wilderness times. That we too would have times of needing to stand strong, to stand up to the tests, to resist the temptation of the enemy. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And you say, but, but that verse, verse 17, it says, says our troubles are light and momentary. You don't know what my troubles are, Christy. My troubles are bigger than that. I have big troubles. I have, like, really big troubles. When, when Paul is writing this in Corinthians, he's talking about people who are being persecuted for their faith, people who are being imprisoned for their faith, people who are being killed for their faith. And he calls them light and momentary troubles in comparison to the eternal glory that is coming. There are some things, I'm a pretty optimistic person, I think. 
But there are some things I can't optimistic my way out of. And there are some things where I just have to say, God, I really look forward to heaven when this will be made right. God, I don't have a lot of hope that this is going to be made right in this world. I'm holding on to heaven. That brings me a lot of grounding. It helps me keep my faith to hold on to the justice of God that will prevail. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And today's passage in Luke chapter 4 concludes in verse 13 and 14. It says, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, Jesus, until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He returned to Galilee. He left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He passed the tests, stronger in his identity, his calling, and his purpose. And so, church, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power that he's made available to you. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes in your life. For our struggles are not against flesh and blood. Our wildernesses are not against just human things, but there is an insidious supernatural power that is part of the problems and struggles we have in this world. Our struggles are against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, just like it did for Jesus in the wilderness, you may be able to, just like Jesus, stand your ground and after you have done everything, like Jesus, to still stand. And so we stand firm with truth. We stand with the breastplate of righteousness. We let the Lord be our righteousness and make us righteous. We are ready to bring the gospel to people, of the gospel of peace. We are ready to carry that. We take up the shield of faith because faith is a shield that protects us from the flaming arrows of the evil one and they hit our faith shield and they sizzle out. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we speak scripture to our temptations. We speak scripture to those who would be the voice of the enemy to us. We speak scripture as a means of spiritual warfare against the powers of this world designed to trip you up and create a wedge between you and God. You have the tools here. You have the weapons of God available and they are in your Bible. Put on the full armor of God. Because the day of evil has come and is coming, and some of you might be there today. Some of you might be in this wilderness space, but put it on so that you can stand your ground, so you don't get knocked over, so you don't get blown aside, so you don't get sucked in, so you don't compromise, so you don't do double dip and do, try to do both. And after you've done everything, to still stand.
Don't give up. Receive the wilderness. I don't know why God gives us wildernesses. I don't know why he makes them what they are. I, don't, I, I know the thorns in my flesh, and I wish God didn't give me those thorns in my flesh. I wish they were gone. I know the things, I know the, the thoughts and the accusations and the situations that immediately take me to wilderness places where I question who I am and I question what I'm doing. I, I know those things in my life. You know those things in your life too, probably. And some of you might be in those places today of just saying, I'm, it's dry here. It's dry. And the bread that the devil's offering, boy, that shortcut, it looks like hope to me. And I'm choosing to believe that it's not my salvation. I'm choosing to stand strong. I'm choosing, as I wrestle within the moment of temptation, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to say no again, and I'm going to say no again, and I'm going to keep on saying no until there is a deliverance. I don't think Jesus felt strong in the wilderness. I don't think that Jesus went through this 40 days of fasting and and prayer saying, well, I am just doing this incredible thing and God's going to use this and it's all going to be wonderful. I don't know that he did that. I don't think that when the devil came to him, Jesus was like, I got the Satan with a smile on his face. I think it was hard for him. He knows our struggle. He knows our weakness, but he also knows the power of God. He knows the goodness of God. He knows the identity that God has called you to. He knows the life that he has for you. And so church, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Will you stand where you are? Go ahead and stand. So that when the day of evil comes, you're not just you're not just sitting. You're, you're not just saying, well, we'll see what happens here. We're, you're standing. Ready. Ready to respond. Some of you need to spend some time praying a minute with God. A, a few moments to pray up here at the altar. I want to invite you to come forward. Maybe you're in a wilderness right now, and you need to talk to God about that wilderness. Maybe you need to make a new commitment to him. Maybe you need to just call out and ask him for help. Could be all sorts of things. But if the Holy Spirit is challenging you and stirring you, come here and pray, and, and let's pray together as a church. Lord God, we come to you as people who, for whatever reason, have found ourselves in wildernesses from time to time. And some are there today. Give us discernment to identify when it's the voice of evil versus the voice of God. Make us humble, Jesus. Not proud, not not justifying why we have a struggle. But humble, saying, I've I've got I've got a struggle. I acknowledge it. Because Jesus, we believe you can do things with humble hearts. We believe you can do things when we've got open hands. We believe that you can deliver us from bondage. And Jesus, I pray today, specifically for those 
who are in bondage to the enemy's lies. Those who are believing things about themselves that are untrue. And I pray for those who are believing things about you that are untrue. And I pray for those who are being tempted to take shortcuts, to compromise, to think we can have it all, the the bread of the enemy as well as the bread of life. And you say, nope, we can't have both. And Jesus, I pray right now for any chains that are binding people in this congregation and pray, Lord Jesus, for your deliverance. I pray that you will break every chain that keeps us from experiencing the abundant life that you promise us in John 10.10. And Jesus, I pray against the enemy's lies that so often fill our minds and our dreams and our daydreams and our thoughts. And I pray, Jesus, that you will cleanse us from these impurities, that you will wash these things out of our minds, that you will renew us, renew our minds in Christ, that you will give us new ways of thinking that reflect the new creation you've made us to be. Lord Jesus, I pray for when we're our own worst enemy, when, when we are the stumbling block to you. And Jesus, I pray for the gift of humility. I pray that you will break chains of pride right now. I pray for those who are stuck in just not being able to admit they're wrong, for those who are not able to admit that they're the problem. Lord, I pray against that pride And pray, Lord Jesus, for the gift of repentance that in your kindness you would convict us by the grace of your Holy Spirit of our pride that makes our hearts be like rocks before you. Humble us before you, Jesus, so we can receive all of the goodness and all of the salvation and all of the restoration, all of the new creating that you want to do. And Lord Jesus, just like when we get hungry, then we get filled, and then we get hungry again, times might come again when we need to be filled by you. Let us be in the practice of running to you, being filled by you, being made new. We offer ourselves before you as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Amen.